This is a podcast about sound, how it impacts your life and the people who are creating the sound of the future. Welcome to Powered by Audio, supported by EPOS. Based on pioneering audio technology, EPOS strives to unleash human potential by perfecting audio experiences. Learn more at eposaudio.com. I'm Randy Zuckerberg. In this episode, we'll bring the noise. That's the sound of not being able to hear yourself think. That's the sound of not getting a good night's sleep at your apartment. That's a busy place where you may not be able to focus and get things done. Okay, okay, enough. Today, we're learning about the physical and mental tolls of unwanted sound and how we can create a better audio environment for ourselves. With us first is Dr. Erica Walker, an expert in environmental noise with a focus on community health. She is the founder of the Boston-based Community Noise Lab, working to find solutions for noise pollution and its impacts on public health. Erica, welcome. Thrilled to have you today. Thank you. I'm very excited about being here. Sounds have a way of getting everyone's attention. And in your case, sound is actually what drew you into advocacy. I'm very curious to hear the story. <laughs> yeah. So um, before I got into this whole community noise and health research area, I was a working artist. And my apartment, which was a basement apartment, was my living situation, but it was also my studio. And one day this family moved above me with two small kids. And those kids used to run the length of their floor, which was my ceiling, for what seemed like 24 hours a day. So because my apartment was my living situation and my work situation, there was little recourse from the sounds. So I went on a request to figure out how to remedy the solution. So my short-term goal was to get them evicted or, or get the landlord to put down carpet or something. But through that process of gathering information to record how loud it was and how it was making me feel, I realized that I wasn't the only one suffering from these uh, these noise issues. And I realized that there was a, it was more than just noise from shared living spaces. It was airplanes, it was trains, it was road traffic. And so it just really became my interest in like how it was impacting our health. For sure. I thought it was just a rite of passage that at some point you just have like tap dancing noisy neighbors, but now I'm glad to hear it doesn't have to be. So when people think about the environment, they typically think about the temperature, the water, the air quality. But I mean, your work really reminds us that audio is a huge part of our environment too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So what would you say is the difference between sound and noise? So sound is just an audible wave that travels through our environment and it's sensed through our auditory system. But noise is defined as unwanted sound. So it's the part of the sound that we as individuals that we filter as being something that we find unpleasant or unwanted. You know, the phrase beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Do you think that's true for sounds also? Can some sounds be really pleasant to certain people and really unpleasant to others? Absolutely. So that's what's really fascinating about sound. There's this whole physical aspect that behaves according to mathematics, but then there's also this very individualistic um, perception that just varies from person to person. So absolutely, another person's sound is another person's noise. Just to test the theory, I just want to name a few kinds of, uh, and you can tell me, sound or noise. You're on a beach and you hear seagulls. Is that a sound or a noise? 
It's like I said, it's so individualistic. So, you know, you could have people who grew up by the ocean and they now live in some sort of busy um, urban center. And they're like, wow, I really like seagulls because it reminds me of a peaceful place. But on the same hand, you could see people who live near water who are just so tired of it that they're like, oh, seagulls just really get on my nerves. So it just really depends on the individual. Good point. What about a dripping faucet? (laughs) Me personally, it drives me crazy. I think that when we look at the difference between sound and noise, I think that we are looking at how much a person can control their auditory environment. So if a dripping faucet can be easily turned on or turned off in this case, then I think it wouldn't necessarily be perceived as noise because you can remedy the situation. But if it's something that you have no control over, which is something that a lot of communities that I work with are dealing with issues that they can't just turn on and turn off, then it becomes an issue of lack of control of their acoustical environment. And that's where we start to see people perceive things that could be, in a typical scenario, peaceful, but very very unwanted. So it's about a level of control over the acoustical environment. Speaking of things you may or may not have control over, what about construction? Like the sound of a jackhammer going off. I feel like I I live in a city. There's always construction noises. So sound or noise? I'm going to go with noise. Yeah, I'm going to go with noise on that one because it's one of the things that we see in our research that communities complain about all the time. Construction, construction, construction. For me, I feel like the construction noise always begins right when I'm about to do a video chat or something important and then it's just like boom in in the background. Erica, you do such great advocacy work for the community also. So maybe you can give us some examples of this, you know, if you if you move into a new community and there's a factory nearby or you live near an airport or things like that, how do you balance what's good for the community and the city to have versus kind of your own experience with the noise? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that most people who live, especially in these busy urban centers, especially people who live near busy roadways, busy airports, I think they understand that there is going to be some sort of trade-offs between living next to these really busy environments and the soundscape. But where it becomes a problem is where it's not something that urban planners, regulatory agencies factor in when they're deciding where to put things in our community. So It becomes an issue of poor planning, poor policy, poor measurement, poor regulation. And that tends to lead people to have to consistently give up more and more and more, which leads to the frustration. So I think that communities accept that there's going to be some trade-offs when it comes to the acoustical environment. But at the same time, because sound is not something that we sort of put at the center of our planning, we require from our residents, our citizens, our neighbors to put up with more and more and more. And it's interesting because I feel like some noises you can sort of get used to. Like my first apartment that I moved into, the subway went under it every two minutes. And um, for the first 48 hours I lived there, I was like, oh my God, earthquake. And, And then I got used to it. But I feel like maybe there are other kind of noises that happen in a community that are just, that are harder to get used to. And so how do we balance the fact that, um, you know, we're kind of expecting people to live in these communities next to airports, next to factories, and how do we not make that a disadvantage? 
Right. So I'm going to give you an example. So I work in a community in Boston, a neighborhood in Boston called the Fenway. And the Fenway is right in the heart of the city. The residents realize that during baseball season, there's going to be lots of sounds from the stadium. It's an open air stadium. So they realize that and they welcome that, you know, in some ways. But then the owners of the baseball park decided that it would be lucrative to now start having these summer concerts. So what began as one summer concert has now ballooned to this year, 12 concerts. So while the Fenway residents understood that living next to a baseball stadium would create some sort of acoustical discomfort at certain times. What they didn't sign up for was the fact that there are now going to be these concerts. And most people are illogical and realize that things are not going to be quiet. But at the same time, if you're going to require a sacrifice, you have to to also be willing to mitigate. Absolutely. It's such a, it's an interesting ethical and, and urban planning question about kind of who gets to decide what sound is appropriate and, and where. Erica, I'm so curious about the work you're doing at the Community Noise Lab. The Community Noise Lab is a process that came from a really, really, really amazing iterative process, sort of working through, you know, from the time where I was trying to deal with my noisy neighbors to going into academia, doing academic research, right? If we're defining noise as unwanted sound, someone has to tell me what's unwanted, and that's usually the community. So we have a network of sound monitoring stations that gathers data, our app noise score, which allows residents to document their own soundscape and talk about how it makes them feel. We have a community noise survey that looks more in depth at uh, the individual. I love that you just mentioned solutions. I'm curious what you're finding is effective for communities and businesses and governments to come together and and are people receptive to to wanting to come together and work on a, a good audio environment? The most important and the cheapest mitigation strategy is listening to come up with a plan that brings about peace. I think a lot of the community residents understand that it's not going to be quiet, but I do think that they would like to be able to have some control over their acoustical environment. And then making sure with projects in the future, the acoustical soundscape is something that is thought of in the beginning to avoid these expensive mitigation strategies that may need to take place on the back end. Fabulous. Now, in our final moments together, Erica, with so many people working from home these days, uh, we're now suddenly being confronted by all sorts of unexpected noise. We're maybe sharing offices with loved ones. There's dogs, there's children, there's neighbors. I feel like every time I open up uh, a chat. My neighbor does leaf blowing just exactly at that at that moment. Do you have any advice on what people can do on an individual basis to create a better audio environment at home? Anything that allows you to get some sort of control over the things you can't control is great. So it could be as simple as, in my case, I have a white noise machine that I play. Um, of course, it's not great when you're trying to do like a podcast, right? Because it's blaring in the background. Headphones, you know, noise cancellation headphones, if you can afford them, are a great solution to soundproofing windows, to going upstairs, have a conversation with your neighbor and asking them, hey, I have an interview between these hours. Can you just like chill out or making sure your landlord puts down carpet or, you know, there's just a there's a bunch of different things. But it's very individualized depending on what the issue is and where you are. For sure. I have definitely done that before. I've walked a plate of cookies over to the neighbor and I've been like, hey, 
please, can you not mow your lawn? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this three-hour window. Dr. Erica Walker, thank you so much for joining us here on Powered by Audio. Your work with audio environments and communities, it's, it's really very exciting. And thank you for all that you do. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Powered by Audio is proudly supported by EPOS. Clear sound in any environment is important for doing business. With innovative voice enhancement technologies, EPOS allows you to hear and be heard perfectly, making it a lot easier to perform at work. Whether it's talking to customers, working across time zones, or listening in when decisions need to be made, it's about communicating and collaborating with efficiency. Find out more at eposaudio.com. Many of us spend a lot of time working. Where we work can be a place that enables creativity, positivity, collaboration, and sharing. And sometimes a workplace can be buzzing with activity. Really buzzing. Okay, fine. Workplaces can also be centers of distraction. That is why David Smith is here. David is the Chief Operating Officer at Lencore Acoustics. This is a company that's adding sound to workplaces to reduce the perception of noise. It's called sound masking. David, welcome to the power of audio. Thanks, Randy. Uh, Pleasure to be here. David, did I get that right? Help us understand what exactly is sound masking. Yeah, so sound masking, it's a a bit of a counterintuitive theory or or practice of essentially introducing noise into a space in order to make it quieter. Take your traditional library as an example of a space that's designed to be really, really quiet. The intention was, you know, you go there, you open up books, you know, or your laptop or whatever the case might be, and you can really have this sort of intense place to focus on, to, to educate yourself, to do work, et cetera. The trouble with libraries as they were traditionally built, and, and I think we've seen some evolution there, is that they were too quiet, whether there was a whisper or a tap of a pencil Um, you know, those types of noises would create tremendous distraction for other occupants or or those studying within the space. And so take yourself from sort of that library ultra kind of quiet environment where you get, you know, reverberation everywhere and put yourself into a coffee shop. And you probably are more productive in a coffee shop type of environment because you have sort of this natural, you know, ambiance of, uh, elevated, you know, background noise around you. And that in effect is what sound masking does or provides. It's not distracting. You know that there's activity around you, but, you know, sort of philosophically, your, your brain is, is geared to not you know, go back to that sort of fight or flight sort of status, right? And that's essentially what we attempt to do with sound masking. We actually introduce noise within a space, you know, whether it's a healthcare environment, a, a corporate office environment, to sort of drive down the amount of distractions that might occur within within that environment. I love that. After a Growing up in Manhattan, it, whenever I go somewhere else, I'm, I'm always thinking, you know, how can I ever sleep here? It's so quiet. I, how can how can I uh, get anything done? So I completely agree. Um, I'm curious, how is sound masking different from noise reduction? I guess you're because you're adding sound in as opposed to to canceling it out. But maybe uh, you know that's amateur speak. I'd love to hear a professional speak. <laughs> 
little transparency here. We actually sleep to a sound masking unit within our household and, and our kids actually were raised with, with that because my wife and I, you know, enjoy throwing parties and things of that nature. And as we raised little children, you know, we didn't want to wake them up. And so we put sound masking in their bedrooms at night. People have this kind of philosophy that, you know, sound masking is maybe sort of this cone of silence. It's really the opposite of that. Um, if you kind of go back to that library example, if a space is too quiet, um, Every little distraction that occurs will take you off task. And so we don't want to reduce the noise in the space. We want to introduce it just above indirect speech levels. And so what we do from a sound masking perspective is we raise that ambient background noise just above that indirect speech, kind of creating that idea that there's activity around you, but it's not distracting. And, and that's essentially the difference between taking noise out of a space and sort of covering or masking it when it comes to uh, sound control. It's so interesting because I feel like there's so much energy that's put on controlling offices with the, the temperature, the light, but honestly, you don't really hear anything about controlling the sound environment. How important do you think that is to productivity? You know, it's interesting when you when you talk about sort of the office environment, right? I think the number one sort of complaint is temperature within a space. Probably in the top five, actually, I know in the top five, and sound or distraction becomes uh, one of those top five complaints. And if you think about, you know, why does that happen? Sort of if you go into sort of the philosophy or the science of the limbic brain, we have this sort of, you know, underlying mentality that we are constantly searching our environment. And those are the types of distractions that pull us away from our activity. And so if we can essentially trick our brains into not recognizing that there's, you know, a threat or something that, you know, we want to go eat, we have the ability to stay focused. And that, in essence, is, is kind of what sound masking is doing. It's trying to trick our brain to not be distracted and be pulled away from our activity. I love it. I mean, you mentioned your kids. I have an 18-month-old, and uh, if I had to salvage one thing from a burning house, you know, besides the children, it would be a sound machine <laughs> to, to help get the children to sleep at night. So I, I completely uh, agree, agree with that. 100%. <laughs> you know, in a world where people are working from home, what could you do in your personal at-home office space to, you know, to really start thinking about sound and ambient noise a little more to be more productive? And that's a great question. In, in sort of the traditional environment, you know, we would introduce sound masking where the ears are. So a lot of people would say, oh, I want to put it in my conference room because I want to have that private conversation and that, in, in effect, is not what you want to do. You want to put it where the ears are. So you would put it on the outside of the conference room so that the, the discussion within is not being, you know, bled over, you know, outside of the walls and, and those walking by can hear, you know, essentially what's what's being transcribed. So from a working from home environment, you know, I would almost reverse that philosophy because you don't want to essentially be distracted by your kids walking by or your dog barking, you know, at the mailman who's coming by. I would put it within the space that I'm working so that I can get my, you know, work done. David, I'm curious, I mean, adding more sound to a place that already has some noise, it feels a bit counterintuitive. So maybe can you take us back to the example of um, you mentioned working really well in a coffee shop or at the beach or somewhere that has a lot of noise and, and take us through how this actually works. 
So there are two aspects associated with sound masking. There is sort of the speech privacy slash productivity component, which is 100% viable within sort of the office type of environment, right? Take yourself to the beach, right? You know, you get sort of this, this full broadband spectrum of light that's hitting you. You get the rolling nature of the waves that are sort of pouring in. And, and that kind of creates this comfortable environment around you. You know, the, the waves from the, you know, the ocean are, are sort of a, a natural sound masking aspect. And when we actually review the sound that we produce... You could almost apply some biomimicry to it, which is, you know, really looking at sort of a full broadband spectrum of sound. We have to apply some white noise because from a scientific standpoint, there are frequencies within white noise, which actually tracks like white light, like there's a wave associated with it that will essentially mask or cover human speech frequencies. So you need white noise, but we also blend in a broader spectrum, including the pink frequencies, which creates that comfort. If you think about kind of everything in nature is random, we try to create, you know, sort of that aspect of randomness and have multiple noise sources so that you don't get that repeatability uh, within a digital signal. All right, David, let's go to a coffee shop now. We're here. There's a din of conversation. I really like the energy of the place. I'm not getting distracted by conversations. Why am I productive here? You're not distracted within the coffee shop because those conversations, in essence, are creating ambient background noise that your brain is not essentially picking up on uh, a level of intelligibility. And so one of the things we look at is sort of your, your privacy index and, and anything that's below essentially 20% of understanding a conversation means that you're going to continue to uh, ha- maintain privacy, but then also be productive. If we can understand less than 20%, we're therefore less likely to be distracted um, by those conversations and be able to keep our heads down work going. And that's what a coffee shop does, right? You have this variety of ambient noises around you, and that allows that ambient noise to be sort of uniformly distributed throughout the space and keep you less distracted by those conversations. I love that. Plus, you just helped me further justify my coffee habit. So I, I feel like this is this conversation is already a win-win. Okay. Now we're in a very quiet office, but we hear this. So that that noise that you hear right there, obviously very distracting, pulls you away. You know, it, it, it rips you from whatever it is that you're doing in the moment, right? And so those are the types of distractions that we're trying to avoid. Do you think people are actually aware of sound masking happening in their environments, or is this just something that our brain puts on autopilot? No, the beauty of sound masking is, um, you know, people will, will ask us, you know, how do you know that it actually works, right? And the best response is, you know, after you've had it installed, turn it off. And there's this dead silence. And all of a sudden, you'll see heads pop up. People, you know, try to figure out what's going on because they've recognized that there's a change within the environment. We like to equate it to, you know, an office chair. People fall in love with their office chairs. But one day, if they were to show up and you had changed their office chair or taken it away altogether, you know, now they're uncomfortable. Their environment's not what they expect. And so that is what happens when you turn sound masking off and all of a sudden you can hear every conversation um, that's around you, right? And so, yeah, we know that sound masking works because of those types of reactions you get when the environment, you know, suddenly changes. 
David, I'm curious, was there an aha moment when businesses realized that they really needed to focus on the sound environment? And were there specific industries that led the charge here? So great question. There's been an evolution within the design community. And and I think most businesses will recognize that, you know, back in the day, we have, you know, the cube farms and we'd have a lot of acoustical ceilings and a lot of fabrics. Design trends have changed where we've gotten rid of those absorbing materials and we've gone to things like glass and reclaimed woods and metals. And it, we create these, you know, beautiful spaces really led the charge from, you know, companies like Google and Apple and Facebook and others that are sort of in that sort of that Silicon Valley, right? And so businesses, you know, are really sort of recognizing that in order to have these spaces, they still need sound control within those environments. And sound masking becomes a, a big portion of that. There's really kind of this demand for speech privacy and sound masking really becomes a solution for that. I am convinced that this is the next frontier of productivity, but maybe, you know, as we wrap up, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the research for the data geeks out there that still need a little convincing. What does the research say is the relationship between sound and mental focus and productivity? I don't know that I have the numbers off the top of my head necessarily, but, you know, in in terms of, you know, productivity It takes us somewhere between 20 and 25 minutes to get back to the same level of productivity that we were in a state, you know, prior to being distracted. And so if we can minimize those distractions, we can certainly boost productivity. And really sort of if you look at the return on investment related to productivity, you know, even as small as a 3% return can really sort of generate, you know, a significant amount of dollars in terms of maintaining that level of productivity versus the distractions that are out there. This has been incredibly illuminating and enlightening. But David, just to summarize, what I'm hearing from you today is that controlling the audio environment is essential to investing in the productivity of your employees. Absolutely. I think that, you know, what really needs to be considered is the overall environment. The sound aspect really plays a a vital role in that as one of the major senses that we all have. David, thank you so much for joining us today on The Power of Audio. I truly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. When it comes to understanding how we humans react to sound, that's Jesper Koch's job. He's the VP of Research and Development at EPOS Audio. He and his team stay on the cutting edge with a stated mission of using audio technology to unleash human potential. Jesper, thanks for joining us. Hi, welcome. Jesper, this is kind of our post-game show happening right now because you get to offer some insights about what we've just heard on the rest of the show before this. So first, we had Erica Walker, who explained how unwanted sound can cause fatigue. I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you think noise affects us physically. Well, we have done, there's two aspects of that. One is, of course, the research that we have done. Uh, We are part of a large group also selling hearing aids. So we are used to provide sounds to people who is dependent on, uh, on sound all day long. In our research center in the northern part of Denmark, uh, we have done some quite substantial studies on that, also together with a number of uh, large universities on a global scale. And what we have done is that we have uh, we have put a lot of uh, EEG uh, electrodes uh, uh, on the on heads of uh, some of our uh, test persons, and then we have exposed uh, those for some very tiring and very tough sound environments for a longer period of time. This gives us a lot of insight on how long time does the brain need to be exposed for ambient noises before you start feeling fatigue. 
And so we have, uh, by doing that, then we have an objective way of actually measuring fatigue, not only in the short term, but also in a longer period of time. Are there certain kind of noises that, in your experience and research, cause more fatigue or more distress to productivity than others? Yeah, I think the, the worst kind, you can say, is the noise where the brain, without you knowing it, actually is overloaded uh, at, at removing that noise. And that is especially a problem for hybrid workers because they are moving in and out of different sound environments at all day and while they are on the move. It also means that they, over a full day, they will be exposed for a lot of different kind of noise. And this is what we do with the headsets. We need to remove that background noise so the user is not being fatigued over time because the brain is, uh, is on overload. Yes, for that really leads me into my next question because our guest David Smith talked about sound masking, which uh, you know feels very similar to what you were just talking about, where you actually add noise in to work environments to make people more productive. I'm curious what your thoughts on sound masking are. Sound masking is uh, is working fine. You send an, an anti-sound in, and that removes the sound that you want to remove. But as soon as you move out of that environment where the sound masking is, then you are then it doesn't work for you anymore. It's pretty amazing. I have to admit that before hosting this podcast, I actually had never heard the term sound masking. Of course, I was familiar with the term noise cancellation. But now that I have you on the line, I'd love to hear just how does noise cancellation work? Noise cancellation consists of two elements. It is the passive part and the active part. The passive part is the one that you just apply by putting on the headset. It is just removing uh, some of the sound, but that is not by far enough. You also need to apply the active noise cancellation, which is then measuring the sound inside the cup and then send an anti-signal into the cup before it hits the eardrum. That way you can actually have a local sound masking in your headset. In fact, uh, as a mother of three young children, I often say, you know, thank goodness for noise-canceling headphones. Yes, for fascinating. Thank you so much for lending your voice to this episode. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. Thanks again to this episode's experts on sound, Dr. Erica Walker of the Community Noise Lab and David Smith from Lencore Acoustics. And thanks to Jesper Koch of EPOS for wrapping up the conversation. On the next Powered by Audio... Humans have been using sound to tell stories since our beginning. In today's visual and audio media, sound effects can reveal a major plot twist and tell you which characters are good and which aren't. Spoken word artists are using podcasts to reach new audiences. It's a new golden age of audio on the next Powered by Audio. Speaking of audio, if you like what you heard, give us a review and be sure to subscribe to receive the next episode. I'm Randy Zuckerberg. Thank you for listening.